Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. I'm flying this one solo today. Uh, Rob Hunt has a son, baseball age, and if you ever had a kid baseball age and you get pulled in to be the coach, uh, that becomes time-consuming and all-consuming. So uh, we're going to hope we can get Rob when we can, at least until the end of the baseball season, and then uh, we'll go from there. But uh, we'll have him back in a couple of weeks, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that towards the end of the show uh, because we really have some exciting guests coming up, and it's going to be a lot of fun. You don't want to miss it. So for most deadheads, you hear Barton Hall, you hear May 1977, you hear Ithaca, you hear Greatest Dead Show of All Time, and everybody knows what we're talking about. Everybody knows the show. Uh, Everybody had a tape of it. I had tape of it. All my friends had tapes of it. We'll talk more about why that was the case later uh, and what role that played in elevating this show to quote-unquote greatest of all time. And there's pages and pages and pages of debate on it online if anybody's really interested to dig through it all. But it's a great show, whether you think it's the greatest of all time or just a really, really great show, um, it it is fantastic. And uh, in the past, uh, we have featured this show before, and what we've typically done is featured the second set of it. That's basic reason why it may be one of the greatest singular sets of music ever played by the dead or or anyone for for that matter, as some deadheads would argue. Uh, Scarlet Fire to open the set. Fire had just debuted on March 18th, 1977 at Winterland. Um, it would eventually be played over 250 times, almost always out of Scarlet Begonias. Uh, but the Deadheads were already prepared to label this version of it uh, the best ever. High praise for a new song. This one written by Hunter and Mickey Hart, uh, not Jerry. Uh, people don't always know that because Jerry sings it, but Mickey and Hunter wrote it. Um, it goes into a great estimated profit. Uh, which debuted also on February 26, 1977 at the Swing Auditorium. That's We've talked about that show before, the first Terrapin show. Um, and that was, so that, that's a relatively new song. And again, uh, it, it's played, uh, you know, top flight fashion. And, and then we get into um, the part of the second set that I think everybody really loves, the St. Stephen into Not Fade Away Back into St. Stephen uh, which was a famous Stephen, not St. Stephen, not fade away, St. Stephen sandwich or an embedded not fade away that the dead were doing uh, fairly often throughout 1977. And I've seen versions of it where they then went ahead and embedded a song in between not fade away. So it could get really deep in there and then they'd have to remember how to untangle themselves out. And then of course it rolls into morning dew, which uh, I think by anybody's estimate may be uh certainly maybe some people will say certainly is the very best version ever played by the grateful dead of morning dew uh jerry's guitar playing is amazing uh his voice is amazing the band is clearly you know at the tail end of an amazing night that they've been flying through and uh you know they they bring it home they don't they don't falter in the last hundred yards they plow over the finish line uh, in fine fashion with morning dew and, and Jim Marty and I, and uh, even Rob and I a couple of times have speculated that it may be the morning dew in, in and of itself that uh, caused people to think of it as the greatest show ever. And if that's the case, that's hard to argue because it is such an amazing morning dew. Uh, and then they close out the show with one more Saturday night, which in typical dead fashion makes you laugh because October, uh, excuse me, May 8th, uh, 1977 was a Sunday night. Um, but you know, you might even argue that this may have been the very first true example, documented example of, uh, the never miss a Sunday show, 
which is certainly a famous uh, line among dead uh, fish heads. Uh, but the dead uh, often lived by that rule too. And it wasn't uncommon on the third day of a three-day weekend run that would culminate on a Sunday. They'd start the, start the show a little bit earlier maybe. Uh, you know, if it was a summer show outdoors, you get a lot of sunshine and uh, they'd bring in special guests or whoever and just jam the heck out of it. But this night was just the boys on stage in Barton Hall, a big old drafty hall on uh, Cornell campus in Ithaca, New York, and they kill it. Um, this is a lot more talking than I normally do, uh, but let's take a listen to the intro, uh, which is the opening song from the night. And uh, I'll give you some more comments on it on the back end. There's a good quote in uh, the comments of one of the articles I was reading about this show. And the quote is from a dead who was at the show and said, when I heard they were starting the show with Minglewood, I turned to my buddy who was here for the first time and told him, sorry, this is definitely not one of my favorite dead songs. But by the end of this version of Minglewood, he was dancing around uh, claiming how much he loved the tune and would never short give it short shrift again. Um, and maybe this might've been the first clue. We're going to focus on the first set today, just the first set songs from the first set, which kind of set the mood for what we can all agree was an amazing second set. Um, but, you know, to come right out of the box with Minglewood, which, you know, can be a good tune, but I don't know that it was ever uh, the automatic crowd pleaser, like a good Bertha might be, or a uh, 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 half-step Franklin's or, you know, something like that uh, openers that everybody knows and loves and uh so used to. Uh, but when they came out, and, and the first thing I'm going to say is you have to just download this entire show off of Archive or wherever you get your uh, live dead music from, and you really have to listen to the entire thing. We're, we're, there's no way we can do it justice today. I'm not even going to try to do it justice. And uh, since I wasn't at the show, um, you know, my, my, my uh, talking about it or just my own thoughts and reflections on it based on my listening to the music and my interpreting it, um, but this is great, great music from start to finish. And uh, you, you need to listen to the entire Minglewood right out of the box. The opening notes, Bobby's kicking it out in high gear. Uh, his voice is great. The band sounds great. And it's one of those opening songs where you can turn to your buddy and say, wow, they're on fire tonight. And you, sometimes you just know it one song in. And and I think it's fair to say in this case uh, that Minglewood Blues, a, a tune that maybe was a tad tired, one of those traditional arranged by songs, which lets you know it's been around forever. Uh, they put it out on their very first album, and then they came back and they put it out again on Shakedown Street. Um, and considering there's a lot of songs they never put on an album, uh, the fact that this one got double coverage always made me wonder just a little bit if they were pushing it a little too hard. 
but it would typically come in a first set with in a rotation with CC Ryder and Little Red Rooster. And sometimes it would be the second or third song, depending on what they opened with. Uh, sometimes another song or two in, but never much more past than halfway through the first set. And since they did it on a rotating basis, you know, it, it was more or less okay. But all three of those tunes were tunes that when Bobby first started at the beginning of the song, uh, you always kind of felt like, oh man, maybe this is a good time to go to the bathroom. But when you stuck around, you were always happy you did because they would really pick it up and they would really crank on them. And they were great Jerry solo tunes uh, where he could just really stretch out. And uh, they actually had all, they were a lot of fun. And, you know, you begin to realize how much a part of the the dead experience they've become so much that if you go to a night uh, and they didn't play one of the three in the first set, you would really wonder what was going on and uh, whether they simply forgot or had something bigger planned for us. Uh, but Minglewood Blues, right out of the box, a great way to start. Uh, and they come out strong. Um, the second clip that I want to play, and boy, I got a lot of clips today, so we can't sit on them, unfortunately. Uh, uh, but the second uh, clip I want to play uh, comes a little bit further in. Jack Straw, uh, always a crowd favorite in every generation of the Grateful Dead. Uh, but here we go with a uh, another quintessential version, if you will, uh, of a regular Dead song made special on this night in Cornell. great song every deadhead likes listening to it when they come out and on a hot night when they're really playing it uh it really takes the mood of a show uh, right away and, and, and lifts it up to the next level when we saw the um 2015 reunion shows at soldier field i can't remember if it was the first night or the second night whatever night they played jack straw i for me at least was one of those moments when for the first time i just felt the entire energy of the crowd come together the, on this exact line the jack straw from wichita now i will say uh that in this slightly earlier version of the song, uh, Phil is not as prevalent with the with the Phil bass bombs that he would drop at those moments, uh, that part that we were just listening to, uh, and really get the venue uh, uh, rattling uh, very well, including Soldier Field, uh, which is a very big venue to have rattle. But Phil was that kind of a bass player, and Jack Straw was that kind of a tune. And um, I, I, again, it's such a, a clear version of it. And what really uh, I notice in this version of Jack Straw is that the later versions that I used to hear uh, the instruments were almost drowning out the voices and, you know, you could hear the voices, but the instruments were really loud and really, you know, tearing it up and everything. Whereas here uh, I, I feel like the voices are much more primary and, and the instruments are kind of in the background uh, simply supporting the voices. And, you know, but when your voices are young and clear like that, you can do that. And, you know, when Jerry got older and a little bit more of a growl, uh, it was time to, uh, you know, to make some changes in the way he sang, but uh, th that's a great song. It's a great version. And uh, it just another sign to the masses uh, that it was a special night still with a lot of it 
in front of them. Now, we will get back to this show uh, in a minute, but there are other things going on that I want to talk about. Uh, First and foremost, Billy and the Kids Ride Again. Uh, They played on April 27th at the Sanger Performing Arts Theater in New Orleans, uh, the lead-off into the opening weekend of Jazz Fest, Uh, a great lineup that he's playing with Tom Hamilton of uh, J-Rad fame, Aaron Magner, Reed Mathis, James Casey, Molly Tuttle, George Porter Jr., uh, Meters fame, Jeff Franca, and Wally Ingram. And these guys just know how to have fun. And and Billy was always all about fun, uh, playing with the Grateful Dead. Mickey, I think, was always the perfectionist drummer and an amazing one. I take nothing away from Mickey Hart. He's uh, one of the finest percussionists in the world and and recognized as such, not just for rock and roll, but for all the uh, percussion that he does and and plays on all of his solo projects and save the world projects and, and everything. But Billy was the original drummer and he had the relationship with Jerry and, you know, was always kind of laid back. He was always one of the guys that liked to do the acid with the band and, you know, really have some fun with it. And, Let's not forget that just about a week ago, we were talking about the announcement from Dead & Co uh, that Bill Kreutzman is not playing with them. And uh, for all of you listening today, uh, this becomes very significant for this reason. Uh, 46 years ago today, uh, the Dead played this show that we've been listening to at Barton Hall. Tonight, Dead & Co is scheduled to play there as well. Uh, We'll talk about it next week. to recreate, to do whatever they're going to do. To uh, It's not entirely clear, but it's been hyped a lot. And, you know, whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun. But how the hell are they doing that without Bill Kreutzmann on drums? Billy was there in 1977. Billy was always there. So that confuses me. Uh, Dead & Co. is playing at Jazz, or just played at Jazz Fest, I guess, this last weekend. Again, um, no Billy, or maybe it's this coming weekend. I, I can't keep track. There's t- too many of these shows. But not playing with Bill. Bill's there on the 27th playing with Billy and the kids. Uh, and then they come in later. Now, I'm not saying that this is all uh, fault, and I'm not really here to cast blame on Dead & Co. And it may very well be that Billy just decided, I've had enough, and uh, uh, I don't want to be with you guys anymore. Maybe for good reasons, maybe for not so good reasons. But either way, um, I suppose it's disappointing, you know, and especially at their age and especially since this is the Dead & Co. final tour. On the other hand, if this means we get more of Billy and the kids, then I'm all for it. And amen. You know, it's like I wish Phil was playing with them, too. But to get to see Phil and friends, uh, you know, like some of the shows I've seen, the Salt Shed this year and uh, out at Port Chester in years past, especially when he's got uh, the, the, the when they're playing as the original quintet. And anytime he's got Warren up on there and just some of these other amazing musicians, right, uh, all the way up to um, – Rick Montordardo, I never say his name right. I'll learn it eventually from Goose. Uh, just amazing people are playing with him. And here's uh, Bill Kreutzman uh, similarly putting together an all-star lineup of musicians. And uh, they're so creative and, they, and they're so prone uh, to just playing out of the box. So they, they opened up the, the first set with a, car of, a cover of the cars, Let the Good Times Roll, right? Uh, they get to trucking in Scarlet Begonias. But now uh, they invite uh, George Porter, to join them on stage. And I mean, George Porter is a legend. The meters are legendary. And if any of you out there have not heard of the meters or ever listened to the meters, uh, then you're missing out on maybe some of the greatest, greatest music, uh, ever made by a, a, a band. Uh, these guys are just incredible. Uh, they're all very old and they don't tour anymore and they don't really record anymore, but George Porter jr. Gets around and he, he plays, uh, 
uh, in New Orleans and other places from time to time. And uh, one year when we were down for Jazz Fest in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, we were lucky enough to be able to catch a meter's performance, a late night show. And the, these old guys came on at two in the morning and played till, I don't know, three, four in the morning, five in the morning, however late it was when we finally stumbled out of there and, and they love it. And uh, so they bring George Porter up and they immediately play uh, the meters fi uh, fire on the bio, Fio on the bio, or however they, they like to say it, uh, which was in the past was always uh, a good lead into brother John and Iko Iko, but uh, uh, they pushed that off for later. And instead they jump into sugar Ree, uh, little China doll. And, and then, you know, go figure. Okay. Look, God bless them. These, these these guys play Sunflower Volume 6, a Harry Styles cover. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you almost want to say, really? But on the other hand, you want to say, really? Wow. I mean, you know, these are older musicians up there um, with so much music out there, as you'll hear some of the other covers that they wind up playing. And to stop and, and, and play a Harry Styles tune, I, you know, I can't tell you that I'm a Harry Styles fan, but I'm impressed, you know, that that's... That's it's like when we we're talking about Dylan covering a Bobby tune last week. Uh, when, if, if the dead and any combination of the dead want to dip into Harry Styles song book and play a song, wonderful for the dead and more power for, for Harry Styles. And I guess that'll now have me uh, going back and checking him out a little bit and, and hearing what he has. They do a bird song and then boom, white rabbit Jefferson airplane. That takes you back to Billy and the kids when they were all living on hate street and hanging out, uh, with with Grace Slick and the gang and uh, doing wonderful things together, and then the, the Tangled Up in Blue uh, to close out the set. Right, that's a that was a Jerry Standard, uh, a, a wonderful Dylan tune from Blood on the Tracks that a lot of people cover. I think Jerry did it the best, and I'm sure these guys did it really well. The second set, though, boom, they start off with it right again. Get back a Beatles cover. Now they do a Help on the Way Slipknot. Love this innovation. Skip over Franklin's for now into Eyes of the World. Uh, then into standing on the moon and then into dead flowers. Now dead flowers may be my favorite Rolling Stones tune. Um, it doesn't get nearly the attention uh, or, or cover that other uh, Rolling Stones tunes play, but I defy anyone to go out and play uh, dead flowers and really turn it up loud and uh, come back and tell me that that doesn't move you as much as jumping Jack flash or uh, uh, anything out anything else in the stones repertoire that, that you like to hear. And then out of that, oh yeah, we forgot Franklin. So there that is. For you ever, forever young, a Bob Dylan cover, which is, is pretty standard, I think, uh, for any of these guys of that genre when they come out and you know, everybody likes to play forever young. It's, it's, it's a great typical uh, group uh, effort at the end of any of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions or anything like that. Uh, then an Al Green uh, cover, Take Me to the River, which we talked about previously when we were talking about uh, uh, the talking heads and they cover it and uh, uh, their version of it and, and and what a great tune that is. And then it wouldn't be a show with Billy Kreutzman if he didn't get some drums. And uh, then to close it all out, they dip back into the Ico. But what a great show. What a wonderful set list. I wasn't there, but I have uh, my good buddy Rick was there. Uh, he's down in New Orleans this time of year. And and he wrote back uh, with thumbs up reviews and, and really, really impressed with how well they sounded and uh, how much fun it was. And uh, if I can't be at a show, it's always great when friends can be at a show because then you get uh, then you get great word of mouth as to what's going on and and what you missed and uh, and and what they got to see and how good it all is. So here's my plug: if Billy and the kids is coming by anywhere near you at all, if you would drive to see Dead and Co, double that distance and say you'll go see Billy and the kids because <coughs> you'll have to check out his lineup at any given time. But he's great to see and. Uh, 
how much fun is that? Uh, great performers, great songs, and a, a really, really great show. Now, we're at that time of year uh, when we get to hear from big announcement out of Cleveland, Ohio, other than, boy, we wish we still had LeBron James. Um, we get the annual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2023 this year. <clears throat> and there are some big, big names in here. And it's hard to say that any of them are not deserving. Kate Bush, not a big fan, but uh, the rest of the world is. And, and she's been around for a while. Cheryl Crow, I am a big fan of hers. Uh, and I love her music. And I think that's wonderful uh, to see her get that attention. Missy Elliott, who... Unfortunately, I just don't have too much of an opinion on one way or the other, and I'm sure she's very good if uh, she's being inducted with this group. And then George Michael of, of Wham! fame and solo fame. Uh, George died, God, I guess about seven years ago, I think, right at the end of 2016. And um, great voice, uh, just kind of like an amazing career in rock and roll uh, and, and popular music. And uh, whether you're a fan of Wham! or not, you can go back and certainly find some George Michael tunes uh, that you'll you'll find very entertaining, and you have to appreciate his voice and and the great set of vocal cords that he was blessed with. Uh, so unfortunately, he won't be here uh, to be able to accept the award. Uh, but it's nice to know that he is being recognized. Also inducted, Willie Nelson, to which I can only say it's about damn time. This guy's ninety years old. It took him this long to recognize Mickey, or excuse me, Willie, and his talents, and actually get him inducted into this thing. Now there's talk about a lot of pushback in past years uh, claiming that country music performers aren't really rock and roll to which I would say BS anyway because if you've ever been to a really uh, good throwdown uh, country music uh, uh, concert uh, with the right performers I you know they get as much of a boogie on as any rock and roll band and uh, Willie Nelson has just been I mean he's a fixture of modern time it's like was Queen Elizabeth, right? We all lived our lives never knowing another British monarch until, I guess, this weekend. Uh, and same with Willie Nelson. He's just he's he's been on the landscape forever, uh, up and down, fighting with the IRS, going to jail, paying big fines, and through all all of that, just smoking his marijuana and uh, pushing its benefits and uh, fighting against all of the uh, nonsense that's raised against it. And there's a really popular sticker slash uh, cup coaster out there that has. Uh, uh, nice picture on there and Willie saying uh, marijuana won't kill you. Smoking marijuana won't kill you unless you let a bale of it fall on your head. Uh, this shows a big bale of hay or whatever. And, you know, look, he's right. That's just common sense. People get all worked up about this kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, most of us don't have to worry about a, pie, a bale of it falling on our heads. So, uh, right, let's all take the message and just understand that we can uh, we can mellow up. But good for you, Willie. You persevered. They let you in, and it really is about damn time. Glad to see that you made it. Rage Against the Machine. We've talked about Rage Against the Machine before on this show. Uh, Zach De La Roca, Tom Morello, Tim Comerford, Brad Wilk. Uh, Tom Morello, guitarist, uh, one of my favorites, seen him play with Springsteen, uh, seen him play with a bunch of people, uh, happens to be a, uh, a genius and quite the academic uh, scholar and uh, as such is imminently qualified and maybe uniquely qualified of being rock, uh, among big rock and roll performers uh, when he wants to get up and, and talk about the issues uh, that Rage Against the Machine stood for as much as those that they stood against. And uh, the amazing thing about Rage is they never tried to hide their politics. You know, in, in today's world, uh, you know, if, if a singer says the wrong thing, either the right or the left is going to tear them apart. 
Uh, but Rage Against the Machine just kind of stuck their finger up at everybody and said, this is what we believe. And if you don't like it, suck eggs. And a lot of people came out to see them and a lot of people bought their albums and a lot of people recognized the talent for what they were. So uh, it leads me to believe that even people who may not have agreed with them politically uh, certainly tuned in with them as musicians. And uh, that's the beauty of music. And that's what it's all about. And those guys did it as well as anybody. And they certainly deserve this. And then the spinners, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a throwback uh, award. You know, the, the spinners, I, were they the ones who sang Rubber Band Man? I can't remember. But the spinners were around uh, when, when I was younger and we'd hear them on the radio. And um, you know what? Again, great. It's nice to see uh, that the award can go to performers who fall outside of outside of the the mainstream of modern day uh, rock and roll. Now, in addition to those performers, uh, other, other other individuals uh, were inducted uh, too under what they call the Musical Influence Award. And the first is DJ Cool Herc, uh, along with Link Ray, a uh, well known country and rockabilly guitarist. Uh, so they both made it in. Under the Musical Excellence Awards, and by the way, I, I can't really distinguish what all these awards are, one versus another, but I'm sure if you go online to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it'll explain all of it. But under the Musical Excellence Award was uh, Chaka Khan, and she needs no introduction, uh, Al Cooper, another wonderful musician who, if you don't know him, you should look him up, and Bernie Taupin. Uh, for all of you kids out there who don't know who Bernie Taupin is, he wrote all the lyrics to uh, Elton John's songs. He was uh, Robert Hunter to Elton's Jerry Garcia uh, in terms of their, their songwriting partnership and uh, is responsible for some of the greatest lyrics in rock and roll. Uh, that my good buddy Dan Lieberman knew all of them, and we were always impressed because uh, he had listened to them enough that he could sing all of them. But uh, Bernie Taupin, uh, great that he's he's recognized. And finally, in the Emmett Ertugan Award, goes to went to Don Cornelius. And some of you may not know Don Cornelius, and some of you may never have heard of a show called Soul Train. Uh, but Soul Train was a Saturday afternoon show on local TV uh, that was a large dance party. Uh, and Soul Train happened to be one that was prim uh, predominantly uh, attended and staffed by uh, uh, people of color, African-Americans and and uh, other people of color. And, and then, you know, there would be American bandstand where, you, you know, have all the, uh, the the white kids with all the songs that were more uh, directed at them. But Don Cornelius, who was the host of Soul Train, man, he was like Dr. Cool. He was Dr. Cool before any of us knew who Dr. Cool was. And we'd watch Soul Train uh, because the music was great. We really liked it, you know, uh, great beat, great percussion, everybody dancing and having a good time, uh, a lot more energy and uh uh, and, and that kind of feeling than you were getting off of American Bandstand. And Don Cornelius was the guy. He would just kind of talk, and we'd all be like, wow, he's so cool, that voice, very distinctive. Um, and he would just take you through an afternoon of of great, great music. And Soul Train was fun, and it would have all sorts of amazing performers. And uh, the one that I remember that, that shocked us all was uh, Walter Payton. And if any of you have to ask who Walter Payton is, then you're too young to be listening to this show, and you have to go Google Walter Payton probably uh, the greatest running back of all time, at least any Chicago Bears fan will tell you that. It's kind of hard to argue with him. Uh, he was absolutely amazing, but he was also very musically inclined and a very talented musician, a drummer. And uh, he happened to be on an episode of Soul Train uh, before his football career took off. And he was identified as Sweet Walter Payton and uh, put on quite a performance, as I recall. And of course, uh, later on, he was always known as Sweetness, and uh, unless he was playing your team, it was just amazing to watch him, and uh, and he, he, he even had his moment on Soul Train, so so glad to see all those guys get in, um, but at the same time, 
for me, it's always interesting to see who didn't get in. And, I, you know, I, 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 there, there can be no rhyme or reason to this, a Tribe Called Quest. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm the biggest Tribe Called Quest fan, but uh, I've certainly listened to them. And, you know, Q-Tib, Fife Dog, uh, uh, the rest of them, I think they're all from uh, New York. I want to say Queens, uh, a lot of hip hop. And uh, in the early to mid 80s, you know, in, sometime into the 90s, they were really solid performers and, and their songs would show up on the radio and, and we'd hear it all the time. Uh, Iron Maiden, you know, one of those heavy metal London based bands that I never really got to know, but they were always out there. They were always selling albums. They always had a new one coming out. They always had new songs on the radio. Uh, you know, so you couldn't almost help, uh, but know them, uh, New Order, which was another uh, England alternative rock new wave band that I didn't have a lot of familiarity with, but, but certainly did hear them. And, uh, uh, knew them that way. Uh, so my point is all of these people are qualified. Certainly Cindy Lauper time after time, one of the very first MTV videos that I, I can remember that just played over and over and over again. Uh, and she was as amazing a performer as she was a singer. And uh, she's somebody who didn't get into the hall of fame, rock and roll hall of fame this year, but really should. And, uh, just, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that she should have gotten in instead of any of the others. And it may be, I don't know the rules well enough to know if there's a limit. And if so, then hopefully her year is next year because she deserves it. Soundgarden, uh, you know, one of those Seattle bands that I was getting into, uh, right. Or, you know, even a little, I guess, before Nirvana and Pearl Jam, uh, really, uh, taking the Seattle grunge sound and, and bringing it to the rest of the country and lead singer, Chris Cornell, who uh, was a really out there guy and everybody knew him and he was a great performer. Uh, unfortunately, he died about six years ago uh, in 2017. Uh, and their song black hole sun was the, the first sound garden song that really uh, got me going. And I wound up buying a few of their albums and, and really liked it, really liked it a lot. Uh, it was very sad when Chris Cornell died and, uh, you know, the band has kind of tried to go on without him, I guess, a little bit. But like any band with such a distinctive singer, it's really hard uh, when that singer is, is no longer there. Uh, Soundgarden's another band that certainly, I, in my opinion, belongs in. And uh, hopefully they're going to get in soon, too. Now, these last two um, uh, snubs, if you will, I don't know. It's like saying that uh, Willie Mays doesn't deserve to get into the Hall of Fame unanimously because who does? Well, if anybody does, it's Willie damn Mays, that's for sure. Uh, you know, and here, the White Stripes. Okay, I mean, uh, if they're not one of the greatest, most influential bands for that period of time uh, when Jack White and Meg White uh, from like 19, late 1990s into about 2010 or 11 from Detroit, indie rock, or garage rock, depending on what you want to call it. Uh, married couple, Jack plays the guitar, Meg plays the drums. Uh, anybody, you know, you, you've heard Seven Nation Army, even if you don't know you've heard Seven Nation Army. And the minute you hear the first 30 seconds of it, you'll know that you know that song, even if you didn't know that it was Seven Nation Army. Uh, these guys were huge. They were so influential. Uh, they were so amazing and everybody wanted to see them and and everybody wanted to know all about them um and, and let's not hold back here jack white's got to be in the top 10 uh, rock and roll guitarists certainly playing today if you know uh and, and in anybody's conversation of the rock top rock guitarists of of all time just a, a singularly amazing talent 
so creative, so many different genres of music. And admittedly, this is only with the White Stripes, uh, but this just speaks to how great of a musician he is. Uh, and I really find it hard to believe uh, that the White Stripes aren't, you know, basically dancing their way into the Rock Hall of Fame. Something very interesting. Uh, Jack White's name actually was Jack Gillis. And in a surprise move, he took his wife's surname. Uh, so he was Jack White, Meg White, and the White Stripes. Uh, they didn't get in now, uh, but you have to believe that they're going to get in soon. And then this last one is almost an insult, in my opinion. And, and and we're talking about Warren Zevon, and Warren Zevon's already been dead for a few years. And the fact that this man is not a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame really kind of defies explanation, I think. Um, uh, he's fantastic. Everybody covers him. Jerry Garcia covered him. Uh, Werewolves of London. People still to this day talk about the impact that Warren Zevon had on their lives. Mus- musicians who say how much he improved their careers. Fans who, who talk about all of Warren's songs and how in his last year after he was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, he still put together uh, one final album that was very heartfelt and soulful and uh, very, very moving and just such a spectacular performer, uh, such an important part of the rock and roll story that, again, I, I just have to believe that it must be a question of numbers uh, and they just weren't ready to uh, expand those numbers yet. But a, a guy like Warren Zevon uh, cannot be a bridesmaid very often. He's got to be getting into the Hall of Fame, uh, should be there already, and uh, hopefully they will uh, amend that uh, at some point down the road when uh, these things are next again uh, considered. Um, I personally have never been to the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. I hear that it's an amazing place. It's on my list of places to get to. Uh, and hopefully I will make it there shortly so I can uh, enjoy it all and really have a chance to uh, and to see what it's all about. So that's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class for 2023. Uh, there was uh, going to be a their typical thing they do at the Brooklyn Bowl. Uh, they record the whole thing. Although I heard that, although HBO's carried it in past years, that their contract ran out and there's a question who's going to do it this year. I can't believe that they don't have a bidding war on this thing. Everybody wants to see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony because not only do you get to see the people come in and hear their stories and hear speeches and presentations and like that, and the the, the inductees actually performing sometimes in a reunion that hasn't taken place in a while, but they always have the big mosh pit at the end with everybody coming out. And, you know, that's when they play Forever, Forever Young or, um, uh, you know, one of those kind of tunes. Uh, I Shall Be Released is another one that they always do. Uh, and, and those are so much fun to see. And, and all these different people all coming together uh, to play. I think it was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where, where Prince came out while they were playing My Guitar Gently Weep with uh, Jeff Lynn of uh, ELO and uh, some other very notable guitarists. And uh, when it was his turn to solo, he, he, he brought the house down. That's everywhere on YouTube. If you haven't seen that, you have to go see Prince do that and have a much better appreciation for what a stellar, outstanding guitarist uh, he was, but that's our rock and roll fame, uh, uh, inductions for this year. And, uh, congratulations to those who made it. Sorry to those who didn't and go and support the hall of fame and, uh, have a good time with it. Well, let's get back to, um, let's get back to, uh, Barton hall here on, uh, May 8th of 1977. And, uh, the next tune that I picked, uh, to play here is called supplication. We'll talk more about it on the back end. Feel it. Well, I need some medication, girl. 
supplication, uh, the back end of the lazy lightning supplication tandem that uh, Bobby played very heavily in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and then it kind of slowly but surely disappeared uh, from the lineup. Uh, I think Bobby uh, did it originally with Kingfish, I want to say, although I, I won't swear that I'm right about that. Uh, but Supplication is a fun is a fun tune, and it was always a great tune in concert. Lazy Lightning was a lot of fun, uh, and it's a kind of a seamless transition into Supplication, where you know, unless you're familiar with the song, it's kind of hard to to note the uh, difference when they've actually slide over from one song into the next. But again, you know, like all the other songs, they're on it, they're playing it really sharp. Uh, Bobby's having a great time with it. His vocals sound really solid, and uh, the music is right there with them too. And uh, I think that really makes it great. The next song that I want to uh, feature from this show uh, is coming towards the back end of the first set, uh, Road Jimmy, and uh, listen to it, and then uh, I'll throw out some questions about that. Jimmy is off of uh, Wake of the Flood. It's, it's such a beautiful song. And again, this was one that people years later talk about as being one of the best versions. And listen to how clear Jerry's voice is when he sings it. Uh, you can really appreciate his voice here. Uh, certainly, again, not like the later years where Gravelly Jerry was fun and served its purpose too, but eventually it, it kind of got a little too grovelly and a little too rough for him to be able to, to sing these songs the same way that he had done them years earlier. Uh, and this is just such a great example of of that voice and such a great version of this song. Uh, Road Jimmy was one of those tunes that I would always go into a, the, the show not even thinking about necessarily, not because I didn't like it, not because it wasn't a great tune. It was one of those tunes that was great without being flashy. And so it didn't always occupy the front of your mind. Uh, but somewhere, you know, typically in the first set, and usually on the back end of the first set, you know, you might even start thinking about, hey, this is a place for a song like Road Jimmy to, to pop in and, and do something. Or he would, they would start playing it, and you'd be like, oh, right, this is the perfect song for right now. And it was always a nice surprise, and it was always played really well by Jerry. Uh, the lyrics are a lot of fun if you, if you actually listen to them and hear the story that, uh, that they're telling. Um, and uh, just another really important part of this show, uh, strengthening up the first set and uh, uh, just keeping the spirits of the place flying high uh, throughout the night. I want to turn to some cannabis news here for a minute because we do have that in our name and people tune in waiting to hear a little cannabis conversation. So let's have some. First of all, we're going to start with the rule that every legislator, Republican or Democrat, must know and understand. And if you don't, you're going to look as stupid as this guy. Don't talk about 
what you don't know. If you don't know, don't try to fake it. Don't try to impress people. Who are we talking about? Very simple. Minnesota State Senator Warren Limmer, L-I-M-M-E-R, rose to speak uh, against the uh, state's the state Senate's effort to legalize recreational marijuana uh, that would allow residents 21 and older to buy up to two ounces of cannabis flour, eight grams of concentrate, or 800 milligrams of edible products, and would let adults grow uh, up to eight cannabis plants at home. Uh, it was also, uh, it, it, the, the bill already passed the state house. Uh, it's expected to pass the state Senate, but state Senator Limmer uh, decided that he couldn't let this go by uh, without getting up and saying something. And I would like to say that this should be one of those moments where afterwards he says, oops, but he probably doesn't even realize. And if he does, he probably doesn't care. So this is Warren, uh, Senator uh, Limmer's quote. Listen carefully. Now, I have seen some of the videos of DEA raids. Some of these plants are eight and 10 feet tall. You could have eight of them. You could have a privacy fence made of these products in your backyard, Limmer argued Friday. Two ounces. Just two ounces is the equivalent to three joints. Excuse me? Two ounces is the equivalent to three joints? Uh, he's now talking about uh, three joints, each one having just slightly under 20 grams of marijuana. Uh, I like to smoke marijuana as much as the next person. Nobody smokes that. Uh and the, the point he was trying to make I, it, it was if he was trying to say uh, that they have to have more and more and more because two ounces isn't enough or trying to suggest that two ounces was so much that you could roll. None of it makes sense, of course. Uh, and don't do this because A, you look like an idiot to your constituents, but B, you wind up passing legislation that's not good legislation. You know, and we've talked about this, the unintended benefits uh, or detriments, depending on what side you're on, of the 2018 Farm Bill, where it says that hemp and all of its constituent cannabinoids are legal and are no longer classified as scheduled drugs in the United States. And now a few years later, everybody comes running back and saying, wait a second, that means that the 0.3% of, of THC that exists in the hemp plant is legal. And if people collect, take a whole bunch of hemp and collect all of that THC together, they could actually come up with a decent amount of Delta 9 THC that would otherwise, if sold as Delta 9 THC, be illegal. You tricked us. You tricked us. This is not the intended benefits. Hey, I got a really simple solution to that, guys. Know what the hell you're voting on. You can't vote on something and then come back later and claim you got tricked. You're legislators. You're elected there for a reason, not so that we can teach you what to do, but because you profess to either be experts in certain fields or have the ability to go out and learn about issues to a point sufficient to be able to vote on them in the best interest of your constituents. This guy, regardless of what his position is, has no credibility and is not fairly representing his constituents because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And, you know, look, that's uh, that's his problem. But this is, you know, along the lines of a of a Bo Bear or a Marjorie Taylor Greene statement where they, they start stumbling into things because they think they're making a good sound bite or they want to try to sound hip or cool. And uh, it, it, it's never it's never a winning formula. And, you know, if you don't think I'm right, just go and listen to it. And if you still don't think I'm right, then. Oh, well, you're entitled to your opinion. Um, so that's the one side of the um, of the dynamic here with marijuana in this country. Uh, people who are stupid, who are ignorant, uh, who are either trying to be funny or think they know what's best. And every time they joke like that and every time they make games about it like that, 
whether they realize it or not, and I'm really hoping they don't, which would be shame on them for not learning. But if they do, then even more shame on them. All of the benefit that people get from marijuana, and we've talked about this, and whether it's medical marijuana or whether it's just regular good old marijuana, which is all the same, it's just question right of whether you're paying taxes on it or not. Marijuana is a positive thing. Marijuana provides healthful benefits to people. Marijuana has been shown to help fight disease. It's been shown to help cure disease. It's been shown to help treat the uh, uh, symptoms and conditions that come along with such a wide range of diseases. Uh, Raphael Meshulam, before he passed away from Israel, uh, had documented all of marijuana's uh, medical benefits and uh, all of the things that it could do, uh, to which we would all say, well, there's probably room for debate uh, over how true that is and whether um, it really does do all of those things. But certainly it's a topic that's open to debate. And if something is open to honest debate, that means that it's not completely one side of the equation recognized to the exclusion of everybody else. Why is that important? Because even as we sit here talking, marijuana remains a Schedule One controlled substance in the United States, which means that the government of the United States has made the astounding determination that marijuana has no known or recognized medical benefits. That's the standard for Schedule One. Cocaine isn't even a Schedule One. Cocaine's a Schedule Two, because for a long time it was used for pain control by doctors, by dentists, in surgery, wherever else it was being used. So they, even though it's a very dangerous drug, far more dangerous than marijuana in terms of its ability, uh, propensity for abuse and destroying lives and 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 uh, physical harm and damage. Um, that's a Schedule Two. Marijuana, they said, nope. Marijuana has no known recognized medical benefits, while states after state uh, starts a medical marijuana program. Why? Because in those states, they've made the determination that, yes, we've seen enough evidence that lets us know uh, that marijuana does provide medical benefits. And who are we to take those medical benefits away from people, especially when we're dealing uh, with a natural herb uh, that is far safer than anything uh, humans can mix up in a laboratory? So, Week after week, we hear all of these studies. Studies, yes, teenage smoking does actually decrease uh, when states legalize uh, marijuana with adult use. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, uh, marijuana can be helpful for this. Marijuana can be helpful for that. Marijuana helps people get off of opioids. Marijuana helps people stop drinking. Marijuana helps people with all sorts of illnesses, with Parkinson's, and helps control their shakes and uh, all sorts of things. And yet people persist and want to say, no, because even though they laugh at reefer madness, secretly they believe every word of it. So here's another study uh, that's just come out in a journal called The Exploration of Medicine uh, that was conducted by researcher Angela Bryan, a cancer survivor. And here's what they found. Consistent marijuana use is associated with improved cognition and reduced pain among cancer patients and people receiving chemotherapy. So let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute. That's not one benefit. That's multiple benefits. Improved cognition, we'll get to that in a minute because it's some people I'm sure seems counterintuitive, but improved cognition and reduced pain. Now, it's not saying it can cure cancer, although there's a lot of studies out there that suggest that certain types of cancer uh, can be fought off uh, and, and treated with, with high doses of, of THC and marijuana. Um, but here, what we're really talking about is saying to the person, we don't know if we can treat, we, if we can cure your marijuana, uh, excuse me, if we can cure your cancer, 
but we can tell you that consistent marijuana use is going to make you feel better. You're not going to feel as sick. You're not going to feel as nauseous. Uh, you're not going to have the same level of pain. You're going to have improved cognition. That's no different than any other medicines that are prescribed by doctors for those reasons and many others. So we have to notice right away uh, the lie under which the government operates its marijuana program, its marijuana laws in this country. And we're all sitting here thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be great. They're all going to do us such a wonderful favor and they're going to make marijuana legal. Bullshit. The truth of the matter is, is that they've been ripping us off. They've been lying to us. They've been living on propaganda and nonsense that they know is nonsense just to have some measure of control over the population at large. And certainly, I don't think we need any experts to be able to point out to us that it's a very popular way for law enforcement to be able to make inroads uh, into uh, African-American and other minorities and people of color into their communities uh, where we see the largest number of arrests is so disproportionate to what the actual numbers are in terms of how much of the substance is used uh, by other groups that make up the populations of these cities. Just a disaster. Uh, Schedule one, uh, no banking available to people in the industry. Schedule one, 280E, you can't deduct your ordinary business expenses. Uh, this is all nonsense. All of it is nonsense. And here's a study, another study that's, that the, the researcher said, we thought we might see some problems with cognitive function, but people actually felt like they were thinking more clearly. It was a surprise. There was 25 participants in the study. They said they were sleeping better and experienced lower amounts of pain associated with cancer symptoms or chemotherapy side effects. And here's another good thing about it. Rather than the study coming to them and saying, okay, you're all going to just uh, take this tincture or do this or do that, they were allowed to look into a diversity of edible products, including uh, infused tinctures, baked goods, gummies, other uh, cannabis edibles uh, with various cannabinoid profiles. And they were all working. So what this is telling us is that it's very possible uh for dispensaries to be able to provide marijuana in a legal market at a level and a quality that can produce a demonstrable positive medical uh, result. Okay, so bipartisan congressional law, lawmakers have pushed to free up research access to, uh, to cannabis from dispensaries instead of from these, you know, government grows like in Mississippi, which everybody basically recognizes are horrible and terrible and nobody would ever smoke that marijuana. Um, and, and federal officials have supported giving scientists that option. But for now, that practice remains prohibited. Why? Schedule one, meaning that studies like this current one involve patients buying their own cannabis, reporting back to the researchers. Instead of having the scientists themselves choose the dispensary products that they'd like to study and providing them to the participants. This is huge. It's saying to people, you don't need the doctor to do it. You can go to the dispensary, you can get it yourself, and you can be able to provide yourself with all that relief that you're looking for. So what does this study suggest? There are benefits to examining the effects of marijuana that's available in a growing number of state markets. And the overall takeaway was that cannabis has significant therapeutic potential for cancer patients significant therapeutic potential. Schedule one, nope, they don't match. Uh, people experience pain relief within an hour, uh, they said. They, they got more pain relief than they ever could. And as a result, they were once again reducing opioid prescriptions that doctors were doing. There was a, a redu reduction in overdose deaths. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, the, the um, uh, show, I don't know which one of the pay-per-views or whatever it's on, Dope Sick, it's all about Oxycontin. 
but the amazing thing about all of that is that nowhere along the way do people talk about possibly transitioning off uh, by using marijuana, uh, which is really too bad. Because again, all these studies show that you reduce opioids, people switch to marijuana, so much safer, it's so much better. Uh, and thank God uh, that studies like this are coming out and being made public for us when the government still continues to walk around with, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil approach uh, to marijuana. And all they're really doing is is just hurting everybody. And it, it, it's really too bad. Um, back to our show for a minute, because uh, we do have a couple more clips here right before we we wind things up. But uh, here's Dancing in the Streets that closed out the first set. It's a great tune. They play it really well here. And what a great song to end an amazing set on to get ready for the best set ever. That's one of those feel-good songs. Anytime you hear it at a dead show, it gives you a smile, whether they open the show with it, close the show with it, or in this case, close out the first set with it. And uh, it certainly sent people, you know, uh, out into the uh, uh, the hallways for their uh, set break, uh, thinking, boy, what else, what can they do uh, to top this, this really, really hot first set? Uh, and of course, we know what they do. Um, so what does this go to show? Is this song, right, is this show rightfully considered? Uh, the greatest dead show of all time. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to make such a bold prediction. It's certainly one of the best I've ever heard. Uh, and if I had been there, I might, might think it was the greatest show of all time. Um, but we know how excellent and amazing the second set is. And this is certainly a first set that more than holds its own and is certainly capable uh, of standing up and being part of the uh, the greatest show of all time. And you know, I tip my, dead, my head to the dead, as I always do, especially for this performance and uh, for, for showing us, uh, you know, how to carry... Uh, great energy and amazing music from start to finish uh, like they do at Barton Hall. Unfortunately, we always have to touch on the uh, more sorrowful side that, that is life and as it affects the, uh, the rock and roll world and uh, a couple of uh, legends passing away. Uh, Tim Bachman, uh, who was one of the three Bachman brothers and the guitarist for one of the guitarists for uh, well-known Bachman Turner overdrive and their big hit taking care of business, which boy, I must have, uh, been uh, in middle school at the time that song came out, uh, but that was just such a great song. Every radio station played it over and over and over and over. Tim was a guitarist and vocals. Uh, his older brother Randy, who's uh, predeceased him, uh, is the uh, lead guitar player uh, and uh, uh, vocal. Excuse me, uh, Randy didn't predecease him. Uh, it's his brother Robbie who we'll get to in a minute. Uh, Randy is the was the lead guitarist and vocals, and Robbie. 
um, was the drummer. And Robbie passed away in January of this year. So, on a relatively short period of time, uh, two out of the three Bach, uh, two out of the three Bachman brothers we've lost. Uh, the Turner was Fred Turner, who was the bass player, and um, you know they, they pulled it all together. Uh, they came out with these amazing albums and uh, had taken care of business, which guarantees them a spot in rock and roll uh, history and fame forever. So, uh, condolences to the Bachman family. And, uh, if you haven't listened to Bachman Turner Overdrive, do yourself a favor uh, and go out and, and, and listen to it. Uh, the other, uh, legend who is no longer with us is Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot was a folk singer. Um, and what was amazing about him is even as a folk singer, he actually came up with some songs, uh, that broke into the, uh, uh, top 10 and, and became popular tunes on Canadian radio and especially on American radio. Uh, those included songs like Sundown and If You Could Read My Mind. Uh, but among my friends and I, uh, probably the, the, the number one song uh, that he did and that we all knew was a song called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which is actually a true story about a uh, an oil ship or a cargo ship or something that's uh, in Lake Superior in November and the skies of November turn gloomy and big waves come and the boat breaks in half and it goes down to the bottom and they all die. And, and it is a true story. Um, and, and even though it's such a you know potentially morbid subject, the way he sang the song and the way he told the story uh, made it a song that you didn't mind hearing over and over again, uh, really catchy lyrics and the way he, he performed it and uh, always a good one. Uh, he also worked on songs uh, such as Rainy Day People and Carefree Highway and uh, really had made a career for himself. He took a little bit of time off, came back, and uh, then eventually just reached a point where he could no longer uh, continue to uh, to tour. So uh, Gordon Lightfoot, also rest in peace, and he's another one who will be missed. Uh, and, you know, it's just unfortunate. On the one hand, we're lucky that some of these rock legends have lived forever. Uh, on the other hand, it means that uh, they start, we start losing them with a regularity that's unfortunate and that we would rather not have to deal with. But again, that's just all part of life. And uh, we wish their families a lot of uh, support and condolences. Um, in wrapping up, just want to throw out a couple of things. Uh, in two weeks, I believe our guest is going to be Tony Saunders. Tony is the son of Merle Saunders, the keyboard legend uh, who played a number of shows uh, regularly with Jerry Garcia and various versions of the Jerry Garcia band, uh, the Legion of Mary and some of the other groups that Jerry put together. They're most famous uh, for their Keystone performances in Berkeley, uh, California. Uh, anybody who was getting into the Grateful Dead, certainly at the time I was, eventually made their way over to Jerry Garcia and eventually made their way over to these Berkeley shows. Uh, and they're just outstanding in terms of the quality and the songs that they play. Uh, the new doors that it opened for me musically, uh, both in terms of the artists that Jerry was covering, uh, as well as the songs that Jerry had written and performed. And Merle Saunders was amazing. This is Merle's son, Tony, and he's going to be joining us. Uh, this is a this is a person who grew up around all of this rock and roll royalty uh, and has some really, really amazing stories to tell. Uh, and that is a show that you will not want to miss. So be looking for that in uh, two weeks. And uh, please plan to join us for that and for all of our shows as we uh, always do our best to cover all good things with the Grateful Dead, uh, all new things in the world of rock and roll, and certainly all new things in uh, the world of cannabis. Uh, there's lots of great music that's been played. Fish just concluded their long uh, West Coast tour. All those shows are amazing. If you have a chance to listen to any of them, you should 
get them and check them out. You will find them uh, uh, to be very enjoyable. Again, tonight, I think you can find it on Nugsnet. Uh, that and company is recreating uh, this very one and all Barton Hall, Barton Hall, Barton Hall show that we've been discussing today. Um, there's a big festival in Indianapolis coming up in September. Um, my good buddy Kevin turned me on to it. Uh, Tab is playing there. Umphreys is playing there. Uh, a lot of great jam music is going to be there. So for people who are thinking about what to do after Labor Day weekend, uh, that might be a good thing to look into and to do. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, the key is just to go out and get great music. So as we get ready to sign off here today, uh, we'll play one last tune from Barton Hall. Uh, and the one thing I didn't really talk about is the fact that Barton Hall is located in Ithaca, and Ithaca is famous for Cornell University. But for some of us, Ithaca is also famous for Ithaca College, IC or High C as we like to call it. And uh, my good buddy Mikey went to school there, and it was very often that Harold and I would load up in the car in Ann Arbor, drive through Canada, uh, cross over in Buffalo, head down the New York Turnpike, drive down through the, the Finger Lakes or whatever they called them there, and make our way into lovely uh, Ithaca, where we would inevitably make our way over to the Cornell side of town to see if we could get people to believe that we belong there, but usually to either uh, go eat pizza at the Nines Pizza House or uh, play Ultimate out on the Crescent, the football field there that uh, we gave a name to, all the gorges that you could walk around and check out, uh, the Fall Down House where they had great parties. Ithaca's an amazing place. It was a wonderful place. Tubby Sheet Pizza, we loved all of it, and uh, no doubt that's the kind of place that would inspire the Grateful Dead uh, to reach heights. So as we leave here, I'm sorry, but if anybody thought that we could focus on this show today without touching somewhere on the second set, uh, then you don't know me very well because uh, that's just not possible. So we're going to go out the door here uh, with uh, the greatest song of the greatest set, uh, possibly in Grateful Dead history. Uh, this is that electric morning dew. Uh, it's only a snippet, and although it's amazing in and of itself, you need to go back and hear the whole morning dew, and to really put it in perspective, you need to hear the whole show so when they get to it and your mind is already blown, it can take you to that next level. Um, enjoy morning dew. Have a great week. Be safe, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. 
I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.